Well, if you open up with me in your copy of God's Word, we'll be in Philippians, Philippians chapter 2. And actually, we'll, we'll be reading from verse 1 through verse 11 this morning, just to give us the general context. And I'm going to ask us to stand together as we read God's Word this morning. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we do give you thanks for this word, and we ask that you would open our eyes, Lord, unite our hearts to see the glory of your truth, see the glory of Christ Jesus, to see all that we have been given in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Work in us this morning for your good, for your glory, for our joy, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. It was Elrond who stood up and spoke, the road must be trod, but it will be very hard, and neither strength nor wisdom will carry us far upon it. This quest may be attempted by the weak with as much hope as the strong, yet such is oft the course of deeds that move the wheels of the world. Small hands do them because they must, while the eyes of the great are elsewhere." Those are words that came during the Council of Elrond in the book, The Fellowship of the Ring, where men and elves and dwarves and others recounted story upon story of the advance of darkness, of Sauron, of evil over the land. And they're daunting words. They're words that spoke of the task at hand, the task to destroy the ring of power in the very heart of Mordor and the fires of Mount Doom. And they're words that could dishearten even the strongest, let alone a young hobbit, the ring-bearer, Frodo Baggins. And more was even said after that that uh, could continue to demoralize, words that strength would not fare well, and so on and so forth. But Frodo's thankfully given some encouragement. He's given eight companions to go with him, at least for a time in his journey, to aid in this monumental task. Now, I know this might sound like an odd connection, but that makes me think about what Paul wrote here, particularly in verses 2, or in verses 1 through 4 of chapter 2. 
Because there, as we looked at last week, Paul calls us as believers to live in unity, to live without any selfish ambition or conceit, to live self-sacrificially and in humility. And you know what? That's really hard. That's a daunting call that is placed upon all believers. And I think it can overwhelm as we think about it. Depending on how we look at it, it can overwhelm us, which can even at times feel uh, and, and lead to defeat before we ever even start. Some things, as you read through them, just feel too big. They feel like too much. They feel like, I, I can't do that. And you know what? I, I'm pretty sure Paul knew that reality. He understood it. He knew human nature. He knew himself. And the Lord certainly knows this reality. And so Paul was inspired to write words of encouragement and hope for us as believers. I don't believe the call of the Lord to live worthily of the gospel is meant to overwhelm us to the point of cashing it in and just saying, I'm done. It's too much. But rather to the point that helps us recognize it, that, that we can't do it on our own the Lord knew we couldn't do it on our own, and He didn't leave us alone. He didn't leave it for us to do it on our own. He left us in community and in union with Christ. And that's what we have in these next verses, I believe, is actually encouragement and hope, sprinkled with this unvarnished awe and worship by Paul of the God-man. If you look at verse 5, Paul writes, "'Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. This verse functions as, as, a, as a bridge from 1 to 4 to, to 6 through 11 because it's on the same road. What Paul talks about in 6 to 11 is still on the same road. You go to verse 12 and he says, continue to obey. Continue to work out your salvation. Obey as you always have. So he's still on this road of exhortation. This, this call to live in humility, to live worthy of the gospel. And so these words convey something very important for us, something vital to this entire call. Paul calls us to have this mind among yourselves. He's calling us to, to think as a group, to think among ourselves in community in a certain way in a certain manner. And he clarifies that. He, and, and, and as he does, I think he actually gives us hope. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. This way of thinking, this way of living is how Christ lived. What Paul calls us to in 2, 1 through 4 is exactly how Christ lived. But it's not merely that, okay? If, if we just had this hey, look, this is how Christ lived, do that. That's just simple moralism. You hear that enough, okay? Just be better, just do better. We don't want that. We don't need just be like Jesus. We need Jesus to change us. And so that's not what Paul is saying. He's not saying just be like Jesus because there's not much hope in that. There's really no hope in us just being like Jesus. That's a daunting task. However, thankfully, that's not what Paul is saying here. He is actually saying, do this because you have it. 
You as a believer are vitally connected both truly and spiritually with the one who has actually done it perfectly. This is Paul's consistent theology. If we turn to Romans 15, uh, Paul calls us there at the start of that, you know, follow Christ. Follow His example. He does call us to follow the example because we do have a perfect example. But then he writes, starting in verse 4, he says, For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the Scriptures, we might have hope. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another. You hear the echoes of what we have in Philippians. And he says, in accord with Christ Jesus, that together with one voice, uh, that that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. So in in that prayer, almost that benediction that he utters, he prays that you would have the same mind, that we would live in harmony according to Jesus Christ. And that idea, according to Christ Jesus, draws our attention to our relationship with Christ, to the fact that we make our decisions, we live in union with Christ. We're guided by that relationship as the people of God. So listen, I believe this sets the stage, this verse sets the stage for what Paul goes to next, this this beautiful hymn in 6 through 11. Uh, You know, as you read through it, uh, the, the language is different than what Paul normally uses. And so, a lot of people actually believe that he adopted this hymn from the early, early, very early church, that it was circulated around and that he kind of moved it in and other people believe that Paul wrote it. Honestly, it doesn't matter because it's in Scripture. It's here for us. This is what is preserved and this is what, is, what God intends for us to know this morning. And in it, what we see, is, and, and you have to remember it, in, all in this line of following that, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, is we see in uh, 6 through 8, the humiliation of Jesus, and in 9 through 11, His exaltation. So we're going to go humiliation and then exaltation. This is placed here by Paul, not only to worship, to, to see the Lord, but to encourage us, to give us hope in the day-to-day, because the task we are given as believers to live worthy of the gospel, to live lives that reflect the truth and the beauty of the gospel, it's daunting. It's a daunting task. But here is hope. Here is hope, as Paul tells us what we need to hear. This isn't calling us again. It's not calling us to that moralism, but it's Paul pointing out that as believers, we have everything we need in Christ Jesus. So, what I set forth this morning, I I hope, will give us encouragement and hope, because it lifts our eyes off of our weakness, off of our failures, to the person of Christ, who by the Holy Spirit dwells in every single believer and And I hope that that will push us then to pursue in His strength what He calls us to as a community of believers. So, look at verse 5 again through 8. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though He was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied Himself 
By taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So this is a command for us. Have this mind. Seek, pursue this way of thinking as a people. Pursue the life of Christ. And so if he says, have this mind, he's telling us we, we have to know what principles Jesus lived by and what principles he fulfilled, know what directed his choices. Because this is the one we follow. This is the one who abides with us. So what do we see of the attitude of Jesus? Well, verse 6 starts off, who though he was in the form of God, and we kind of have to stop there and ask some questions. What does Paul mean by this phrase? When I read the form of, I, like naturally my mind thinks a copy, a, a replica of some sort, uh, something along those lines, but that's not what Paul is conveying here. He's not saying Jesus was just a copy of God. This is actually beautifully speaking of Jesus' inherent deity. Uh, the theologian B, uh, Benjamin Warfield wrote this. He says, Paul does not say simply, he was God. He says he was in the form of God, employing a turn of speech which throws emphasis upon our Lord's possession of the specific quality of God. Form is a term which expresses the sum of those characterizing qualities which make a thing the precise thing that it is. When our Lord is said to be in the form of God, therefore He is declared in the most express manner possible to be all that God is, to possess the whole fullness of attributes which make God. So saying very clearly, He's God. He is deity. This is the Scripture witness, Colossians 1.15. He is the image of the invisible God. Hebrews 1, 2, and 3, in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed the heir of all things, through whom also He created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature, and He upholds the universe by the word of His power. There's so many other places we could go, Colossians 2 and John 1 and, and 8 and 17. The point is, Jesus is God. And this is something that, you know, if we, if we go to our, our history as a, as a church and we look at the shorter catechism, question four, what is God? God is a spirit, infinite, eternal, and unchangeable in His being, wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth. And then a few questions later, it says, how many persons are there in the Godhead? There's, there's one God, the living and true God, but how many persons are in this Godhead? And the next question, question six, says, there are three persons in the Godhead, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and these three are one God, the same in substance, equal in power and glory. Now, there is some mystery to this. We cannot grasp the beauty of the Trinity in its fullness. We, we can't understand it. We can't lay it out in a formula. But it is laid out in Scripture very clearly that this is our God. God is one God in three persons. Now, this text that we have, and Scripture as a whole, speaks to the full deity of Jesus. And it is this one, the one who had full deity, who did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Jesus did not hold tightly to his position. Actually, it was because he was God that he operated in this manner. I love how the old NIV 
uh, translates this verse. It says, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. Because what, what that, that helps emphasize is it is because He's God, not in spite of the fact that He's God, but because He is God, He humbled Himself. Because this is His nature. That's what drove Him. When you think of the nature of God of gracious and compassionate and slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness and truth, and justice. This is who He is. This is why He did what He did. When we read in verse 7, He emptied Himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. This is the nature of the God we worship. Because He's God, because God so loved the world, Jesus did this. He didn't count it something to be held on to in that position, but took the form of a servant, emptied himself. 2 Corinthians 8, 9, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. At the very heart of the New Testament message is that Jesus set aside his position His glory in heaven for the sake of others. The one who is very God of very God did not hold on to that, but humbled himself. As the the text says, he emptied himself. Now, that phrase takes a little explaining as well, because I think it can be confusing to say Jesus emptied himself. So, what does that mean? Well, let me tell you what it does not mean. It does not mean that he emptied himself of deity or attributes of deity. He did not cease to be God. And this is where looking to the church fathers and the history of the church is helpful. Knowing the creeds, we we recited the Nicene Creed earlier in the service. Uh, Nicene Creed's from 325 and 381, kind of a combination. And then came the Council of Chalcedon. And at Chalcedon in 451, they had the Chalcedonian definition, which helped clarify some further errors that people were making in regard to who Jesus was. And let me just read some key parts of that. It's not going to be up there, so just listen. They said, we then, following the Holy Fathers, all with one consent, teach men to confess one and the same Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, the same perfect in Godhead and also perfect in manhood, truly God and truly man. Then further down, one and the same Christ, Son, Lord, only begotten, to be acknowledged in two natures, inconfusedly, unchangeably, indivisibly, inseparably, the distinction of natures being by no means taken away by the union, but rather the property of each nature being preserved and concurring in one person. The whole idea is that Jesus remained God, He's truly God and truly man, very God a very God. And I believe it's important for us to be familiar with that. We have to know the God we worship. We have to understand the truth and and know that the church has dealt with various heresies throughout time. So when someone comes up with something new that sounds a little off, maybe go back to history a little bit. Look at these creeds. They're important. They're helpful for us. Jesus, the one who's truly God and truly man, took on flesh, born of a woman, He took the form of a servant. He became a servant. Our God came to serve His people. And this was deliberate 
It was voluntary. It was this voluntary self-renunciation by Jesus. The text actually says, himself he emptied. That's how the, the word order in Greek is. We just don't say it like that in English, but it, it kind of emphasizes that fact that it's voluntary, that he did it. John 1.14, the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glorious of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Yet, though he's full of grace and truth, and we've seen his glory as a servant, he was one, as Isaiah 53 reminds us, who had no form or majesty that we should look at him, no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Again, he became a servant, a slave. Now think about this. What's, what's the defining characteristic of a, of a servant or a slave? It's they're, they're nobody, right? No one, no one gives a thought to the slave. They have, no, they, they have no rights at all. So Jesus, the very God, a very God, became a servant, became a nobody in many ways for us. He didn't exploit His deity, he didn't, he, and yet He didn't give up being God, but at the same time He became a human to serve. Now why? Why would He do this? Look at verse 8. And being found in human form, that's almost a, a summary of what we had just before, being found in human form, He humbled Himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. What was the point of His humiliation? Well, it culminated with His death in many ways at the end of a life of perfect obedience. This humiliation was Jesus' whole life, everything He did, everything He thought, everything He felt towards the wayward and the lost. It was His mind, His mindset, His attitude, His way of thinking was one of humility and self-sacrificial service and compassion. It's exactly what we're called to. Philippians 2, verse 3, in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Be willing to be the slave, the servant. His was humility. It was obedience to the point of death. Doing the Father's will in pain, through injustice by others. He gave Himself. He gave His very life so that we could have life. Now, when you read this text, you notice Paul's a little redundant, isn't he? Being found in human form, He humbled Himself by becoming obedient to the point of death. Okay. Even death on a cross. Why add that? Why add even death on a cross? Why emphasize the thing that was at that time? So, so imagine the, the 
the original readers of this. Why emphasize the thing that is the most degrading of deaths in that day that anyone could ever imagine? Folks, we have become desensitized to the cross. There's one hanging behind me. Some of you have them hanging off your ears or around your necks. You have them in your house, on the wall. But the cross was cruel. It was one of the worst deaths imaginable. I don't know if we would have, like, none of us could imagine wearing an electric chair around our neck, right? It's, it's hard to imagine what this imagery would, would bring up for people. Because even the electric chair, we, we, it's not before us. We don't have presidents lighting uh, roadways with people in the electric chair, just seeing if they'll glow, like Nero did with Christians on the cross. This was the worst of the worst. So why talk about it? Why talk about that which would would bring that up or or would bring up just almost shame that because the rest of the world would go, your 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 God died on a cross. What a bunch of losers. Because that's important. (laughs) Galatians 3, starting in 13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us, for it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. So that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. He wasn't just stoned. He took the curse for us on the cross so that we would receive life, the promised Holy Spirit, by faith. That's why it's still in there. Because we have a God who would go to those depths for His people. The language in these verses, it really should shock us. It's hard to because it's not our historical context. But it needs to because God Himself, because He's God, because He so loved, so loved His own people, He became a slave, humbled Himself, obedient to the point of death, a revolting and foul death on a cross for sinners just like you and me. That's jaw-dropping. But as amazing as that is, Paul doesn't leave us there. Yes, he humiliates or highlights Jesus' humility and his grace, the mindset of of self-sacrifice, because that's the attitude we're called to have as believers. But Christ's work does not end in his death or even in his resurrection. Look at verse 9. Therefore, God 
has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Therefore, therefore, because of the self-emptying of the obedience to death, all of his life and work that was done perfectly, without spot or blemish, God exalted him. He highly exalted him. Psalm 97.9, For you, O Lord, are most high over all the earth. You are exalted far above all gods. You see, Christ ascended to heaven, out of the depths of death, and He was lifted high above everything, and to Him was bestowed the name that is above every name. Now, what is that name? There's debate. I think it probably most likely refers to Lord, more, almost more of of a title rather than Jesus. Jesus was the name given to Him at birth, and we see that it is that the, the name Lord that title, Lord, is what everyone will confess, that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And in Isaiah 42, verse 8, God declares, I am Lord. I am the Lord. That is my name. My glory I give to no other. Just looking at this little verse, this little part of this verse in Philippians, In Isaiah 42, you have the deity of Jesus. That name, the the Lord, the covenantal name is ascribed and bestowed upon Jesus. And as D.A. Carson wrote, not because there was no sense in which he had it before, but because he now achieves it for the first time as the God-man as the crucified and risen Redeemer. To give such a title to Jesus, therefore, is tantamount to confessing Jesus' deity, but now as the triumphant, resurrected God-man who was once crucified and now reigns. And this risen and ascended Jesus will receive universal worship. For at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Now, almost certainly here, Paul again is alluding back to Isaiah, this time to chapter 45. And I would encourage you to read through chapter 45, particularly from from verse 14 through, oh, probably verse 25. And in that, the context of Isaiah writing there is dealing with the exclusivity of God and that the nations will realize that their idols are just that. They are idols. They are not the true God. But here, verse 22 and 23, turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. By myself I have sworn, from my youth has gone out in righteousness, a word that shall not return. To me, every knee shall bow, every tongue shall swear allegiance. Jesus is God. Jesus is our covenantal Lord. Jesus is the ruler of the universe. He's Israel's God, our God, the one who humbled himself to the point of death on a cross, now ascended, is reigning as the Lord over all. It's the fulfillment of Isaiah 45. 
So folks, looking at all this, we can rightfully get caught up in the beauty of verses 6 through 11. Yea, I would say we, sh- we should. <laughs> it's amazing to see what our Lord did for us. But remember, this is in the midst of exhortation by Paul. And sometimes Paul just, he can't help himself. He just busts into to praise. But I think it's also here for another, for that purpose, to give us hope. In the midst of all we are called to as believers, living in, a, in an environment that is hostile to our faith, having a nature, a fallen nature that, that fights against it, gives us hope in the midst of that, in the call to live the Christian life, to, to, to reflect and, and follow the way and example of our Lord. This, this text absolutely screams, it shouts from the rooftops that our Lord, the one we worship and follow, is reigning. And every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that He is Lord. And that is amazing. And, and, and I, I just want to shout, come, Lord Jesus, come. Make that day more and more a reality. Finish it off. <laughs> I'm ready. You know, our Lord didn't just die and raise from the dead and fade off into the distance. And we get the end credits right now, and we just, whatever. He's actively reigning. He is exalted. He is the Lord. And this is the one that you and I as believers are united to. You read all that in Christ and with Christ language in the New Testament, this is the one it's talking about. We are in union with Him. How that all works, I, I can't explain it all. But I'm thankful. And by faith, I want to walk in that truth and, and have God's His, His Spirit work in me. Christ dwells in us by His Spirit. And you know what? That guarantees us that we can and we will grow in our likeness with Him. Because He began a good work in us. You and I can change. We can see our pride lessened. We can see our fear fade. We can see our anxiety disappear or at least lessen. We can see our frustration. All those things, our selfishness, changed. Not because of us, but because of the one who is in union with us and his spirit is at work within us. Rankin Wilborn wrote a book on union with Christ, and he said this, the same Christ who overcame every temptation and was perfectly obedient, that Jesus is in you. 
The same, the, the Jesus who had compassion on the crowds and who healed the sick, that Jesus is in you. The humble Jesus who led as a servant, who washed his disciples' feet, he's in you. The Jesus who suffered and loved to the end, he dwells in you. And the Jesus who was raised to new life, that Jesus is living in you right now. Folks, that is worth a lifetime of discovery and a lifetime of learning to trust and grow in that each and every day. Another beautiful thing about this passage is Jesus' life trajectory shows us ours as believers. It's humiliation and then exaltation. It's humbling. Being humbled by our sin and, and so much else, and then that glorification with our Lord. We live a life of service and self-sacrifice we follow in his steps. We believe the words, the greatest among you shall be your servant. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. This is our call. Follow Christ in his strength. Know that in Christ we can live out this call. We have hope. We don't have to curl up in a corner. There actually is hope for change. And I, I know as much as any of you, sometimes you don't have that hope for change. You think, how can I say and do the same stupid things day after day? There's hope. There's hope. Jesus lived for others. He lived for us, lived to obey for the sake of his lost children. And we can live in him in the same way. So hear this. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours, believer, in Christ Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we do give you, we give you thanks for this beautiful word. May we see that beauty more and more clearly. May we rest in this truth. Give us hope. Some of us have, have dealt with the same issues for years upon years, and we haven't seen change. Lord, give glimpses of hope. Help us to, to know our union with Christ. Help us to rest in that, that, that we would pray every day, that, that, that we would see that reality more and more in our lives. And may we as a church encourage one another in this journey that you've called us to. Thank you that you do not leave us alone, but you have inhabited the lives of believers by the Spirit and make the life of Christ then more and more visible and known 
in all of our lives. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.